Hey friends, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors of Restored Church. I want to welcome you from wherever you're tuning in. We are in a series that's called Teach Us to Fast. It's a series on the rewards of biblical fasting. And the big idea with this series is that fasting is foregoing food in order to feast on God. And it has been a rich time as a community of diving into fasting for a variety of purposes and topics. And today I'm going to go ahead and continue this series and we're going to take a look at what it looks like to face the hostility and the threats and the suspicion that we as God's people come across in this world. How do we like respond to that by fasting for protection? And we're going to look at the story of Esther and I think it should be hopefully as encouraging to you as it has been to me to dive into this beautiful book of the Bible. And before I do, I want to share a quick story with you to kind of set up our time. Back in 2011, I was dating my now wife, Heather, and she had just moved over to, we were living in San Diego, and she moved over to East Mission Valley, so over by the the stadium. And I went over uh, one day just to hang out, and this was before her roommate had moved in. So she was, it was just her at the time, her roommate would be moving in soon. We were hanging out, just kind of having normal conversation. At some point, the conversation kind of went to a fairly random topic. We started talking about my phone. And what we talked about was the fact that my phone at night, it would basically go into what you would call, what you call like this do not disturb mode. Some of you guys are probably familiar with it, but basically I don't, I wouldn't get notified of any phone calls or any text messages until the next day. And so we start talking about it and Heather mentioned, hey, it might be good for you to turn that mode off so that you would be reachable in case of an emergency by someone if that emerges, if that arose. And I was like, oh, you know what? I think that's a good idea. I should do that. And so we kind of kept talking and we hung out. And then, you know, I I left, I went home later that night and just kind of did my normal bedtime routine and went to bed. I wake up the next morning and just kind of roll out of bed, grab my phone, take a look to see what's going on. And I'm just shocked and dismayed at what I see. I look at my phone and there's like 15 missed calls from Heather in the middle of the night. And I heard none of them because do not disturb was on. And my heart sank, my jaw just dropped. And all of a sudden, the situation flipped and now I'm frantically trying to call Heather to figure out what's going on. And I'm just like, I'm mad at my phone, like, why didn't you disturb me? You know, you know, I put you on to do not disturb for all of garden emails, not for this. And, uh, and so anyway, what happened that night has stuck with me. This was nine years ago and it has stuck with me. And here's the thing in hindsight, What ended up happening was there was a, Heather woke up in the middle of the night to smoke and alarms in her building because there was a fire. There was actually a dumpster, a literal dumpster fire that was started in the apartment building. And because there was a trash chute, all the smoke was billowing up into the floors. And so she got the smoke, the smell of burning trash and the alarms woke her up and she was obviously scared. It was a new place. She was alone, her roommate wasn't there. And so she called me to, to help her and I missed it. I missed out on the opportunity to be there for her. And it was a really dumb move on my part. I fully own that. But with 
really the benefit of hindsight, I'm realizing more and more that it wasn't just a dumb move. It was so much more. I'm basically convinced now that what that conversation that seemed random, where we're talking about my phone and the settings and emergency, emergency in the middle of the night, wasn't random at all. I think it was all part of a divine plan that God was actually so concerned about us and specifically Heather in that difficult, scary moment that she was facing, that she, he prepped me to be there, to be a safe person, to help provide protection for God's daughter in that moment of need. And the problem was that I didn't recognize it as a moment of need. I didn't know, I didn't recognize, I didn't see any indication that God was working. And I'd forgotten that God is always working. So I didn't join him in what he was doing. I missed his invitation and it caused Heather a major headache and problem that day. Why do I tell this story? As I've taken some time to think about it, I really do think that if we as God's people do not recognize that God is always working behind the scenes, we won't see opportunities to love people and partner with him in his plan to rescue and restore his world and love people. God may well be inviting us in this moment right now through this message to partner with him, to be ready as people who are ready to jump in, to love, to serve, to protect others in what has become a very scary and confusing world. 2020, if you think about it, doesn't the word dumpster fire come to mind? It does, doesn't it? So what if God is seeking to protect others from this dumpster fire, in a sense, and be his people amidst this, this inferno that's going on in the world? Are we aware of that? Are we awake? Or are we snoozing through his invitation? Now, today... We're actually going to read from the book of Esther, like I mentioned earlier. We're going to see how God woke up a girl, a woman, a young woman who was comfortable, who was safe, and who was sleepy. He woke her up, and he worked through her in a crisis to do remarkable things that brought hope and joy into the scariest of situations. And I think God today is inviting you, and he's inviting me to see ourselves in this story and find a path through this messy, difficult painful dumpster fire that is 2020. So we're going to go ahead and turn there, but I'm going to have to set it up because Esther is 10 chapters long, and this is not a series on Esther. This is one message. So I'm going to do my best to set up the text that we're going to read today to give you context for what's happening. I cannot do the book of Esther justice in a message, but I'm going to do my best. So what's happening? Here's the book of Esther in a nutshell. The people of God There's a people of God, a part of his people who have chosen to live in exile. What does that mean? It means that they live in a land that is not their own. They're not home. That itself is not a problem. Because God talks about in Jeremiah 29, 7, he says, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to or exiled you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. The people of God, it's important to know this, the bigger picture story here is the people of God were sent into exile because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant they made with God. They were, in many ways, sort of like an unfaithful spouse. 
to the Lord. All the, that said, God sent them into exile. That was a part of what was going to happen if they broke the covenant. They knew that and they did it anyway. Even though that was the case, God was working through his people, his unfaithful people, for the good of the city in which they lived and were sent as exiles. So for me, I just want to take a moment just to remind us that we can have big hearts for Temecula. Even though this is not ultimately the eternal city that God is preparing for us. Because we're exiles too. We don't live in our home yet. This is home, but it's not home with a capital H. God is preparing an eternal city for us to live in with him. When heaven comes down to earth, it's going to be amazing and beautiful, but that's not yet. But as we live here as exiles, not in our home, we can love this city, seek its flourishing. That's a beautiful biblical thing. Here's what's interesting. As we read the book of of Esther, we realize that people living in exile face a lot of problems not being home. The people of God in this book were under leaders who were sometimes hostile and threatening to them and sometimes just forgetful and kind of ignorant of their needs and of their situation. And sometimes they would actually institute policies that hurt God's people. We can relate, can't we? It can really cost you something in our world, in our nation, in our state to identify with God's people and follow your convictions, right? Even if you're kind, even if you're respectful, even if you're not judgmental, you can be labeled intolerant. You can be labeled a bigot. You can lose your business. You can be accused of all sorts of things just for being a Christian who hold biblical views. And I'm assuming that you're doing that without being a jerk, right? Or that we're doing that without being a jerk and we can still have hard times in the midst of it. It was then, in the time of Esther, risky to be identified with the people of God and it still is today. The big question that is, uh, that's been behind this book and a big question that's behind this message today is where do we, as God's people in exile, turn for protection when things get hairy? And we're going to return to that later in this message, when things get hard and scary in this world. Let's keep going. Esther was a Jewish woman living as, as an exile in this dangerous world. Okay, and she remarkably and incredibly, she rises to prominence. She goes from being a nobody to the queen. She becomes queen. The queen of Persia was actually dethroned or deposed by her husband, King Xerxes, because she wasn't willing to do something that he asked her to do. And so Esther, she is deposed, and they ended up having like what you could call sort of like the Miss Persia contest. And whoever won that would then become the queen. It wasn't quite as exciting as it sounds though, because you were taken from your home forcibly. So it's a really bad situation. You're like taken at night and forced into a year of beauty treatments and then you spend a night with the king and we'll see if he wants you or not. And if he doesn't, you go off to the harem. It was not, it's scary. It's a very frightening place. And that was how she became queen. She like won everybody over and she won the heart of the king. Part of what happened was that her, that Esther, she's an orphan and she had a cousin named Mordecai who was a guardian to her. Mordecai was kind of politically savvy. He wanted to be well-connected. He kind of hung out where all the influential people hung out in the city. He's also Jewish. 
And he told Esther, hey, as you're going through this, the situation, this Miss Persia thing, do not tell anybody your true identity. Don't tell them that you're Jewish. Don't tell them that you belong to the people of God. He wanted her to win. He wanted her to win. He wanted her to assume power, presumably, even if it was a marriage to a godless, dangerous king. Why do I say this? I think it's important to, to know something about Esther and Mordecai. And this is from Mike Cosper, who wrote a book about Esther that's really good. He says this, Esther begins her story as a Jewish girl, Hadassah, living with a Persian name, a name that honors the ancient Near Eastern goddess Ishtar, under the care of her cousin Mordecai, a name that honors the god Marduk. These names alone should set off alarm bells. There was a man named Nehemiah who was a reformer of the Jewish people who dragged people into the streets and beat them for lesser offenses. Here's what he's really saying. Esther and Mordecai, they're conflicted. Okay, they're people who are out to save their skins and advance their careers or their social status. So this is not a story about virtue and character, but about someone who has become acclimated to a godless world and has grown quite comfortable with it. I'll say that again. This is about someone who has grown acclimated to a godless world and has grown quite comfortable in it. Man, that cut me deep when I read that because I was like, that could just as easily apply to me. Esther and Mordecai, there's a sense in which they appear to be a picture not of commitment, but of compromise. Compromised exiles, comfortable in their world. As queen, Esther is comfortable. She's safe. From a human perspective, she lacks nothing. She seemed to be totally okay with this way of living. And if we think about it, we should be able to see some of ourselves in Esther. Relative to human history, we live in palaces. We are surrounded by creature comforts, beauty, distractions, mindless consumption, and for the most part, more safety than people have had in human history, even if it doesn't always feel that way. I don't say this to shame you or anyone. I say this only, and please hear me, I say this only because it's so easy to be lulled to sleep by how much we have, that we forget who we are and why we're even here. Say that one more time. It's so easy to be lulled to sleep by how much we have that we can forget who we are and why we're here. That in many ways is Esther. If I'm honest with myself, that in many ways is me. And I have a feeling that you could probably resonate with that. That probably resonates with you too. That's probably likely true of you. But just like Esther though, we have a choice. We have a choice. Confusing and chaotic times are a gift in a sense because they actually bring our faith lives out into the open. How? Our response in tough times reveals who or what we trust in. Let's keep going to see what I mean. So while Esther is living this sort of comfortable life as queen, Mordecai just so happens to overhear. He likes to hang out where powerful and influential people like to hang out. So he overhears of a plot to kill King Xerxes, Esther's husband. This chance encounter, okay, through this chance encounter, Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king, hey, Mordecai heard this. The king has it investigated. It turns out to be true. And these two people who are conspiring to kill a king end up executed. 
And so it's like, it's um, this amazing moment. Oh my goodness, Mordecai has been hanging around people in power and now it's, it's, his, it's his moment in the spotlight with the king to receive honor and the king's trust and maybe a position within the king's, his, his officials. And guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. It's crickets from the palace. The king forgets all about Mordecai, and instead he promotes a man named Haman to be this king's second-in-command. More on him later, but Mordecai is forgotten. This was an injustice in that culture, and we can feel that injustice today. There are moments when God's people find no reward for doing the right thing and are overlooked. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you've served your company faithfully with no reward. Maybe you've bailed out your bosses out of a bad situation by putting in a big effort and the results brought you little to no benefit. Or outside of the workplace, maybe you've cared for an aging parent or a difficult and wayward child, or you've tried to love a difficult person. Whatever it may be, there are probably scenarios and instances in our lives where we will serve faithfully to little or no fanfare or reward. And you are not alone. Here's the cool part. As Mordecai would later find out, you never know how God may weave your painful situation in which you are overlooked into a greater story of redemption. As a minimum, we know that God doesn't overlook a thing. And in time, he will exalt the humble. Sometimes in this life, as it happened with Mordecai later on in the book of Esther. But even if it's not in this life, then certainly in the one to come. In his city, where he runs things and he loves to reward his faithful people and he is not a forgetful king. The reward may be delayed, but it is not forgotten. I hope that encourages you today for when you feel overlooked, neglected, forgotten, used. Your reward may be delayed, but it is not forgotten. Humanly speaking though, Mordecai in the story is forgotten and Haman rises to power. Who is Haman? He's an Agagite, which means that he is an enemy of God's people. Specifically, he's a guy who seeks power at all costs. He does not tolerate dissent and he hates the people of God. He is bad news and he is actually raised to power while Mordecai is forgotten. So one day, Haman notices that while Haman is walking around, everybody bows to him to, as a show of respect, except for one person, Mordecai. He does not. And it sends Haman into a rage. Now what Haman found out is that Mordecai is a Jew. He's a Jewish man. And so what happened was what was once a personal spat between Mordecai and Haman now became a national crisis. It became a full-blown crisis. Why? Because Haman decided not just to kill Mordecai, but he wanted to annihilate the Jews. There has been, over the course of time, many instances where the people of God have come under serious, significant oppression, attacks on their lives, and we see it here, and it has continued on throughout the generations, and it will until the king returns to his city and establishes peace. That's just a reality. 
wildly, Haman deviously convinces the king, King Xerxes, to sign off on this plan to annihilate the Jewish people. The king asks no questions, and he just believes Haman when Haman says, hey, there's a certain group of people that are causing problems, they're not obeying the laws, and they need to be destroyed. That wasn't true. It was a personal beef between Mordecai and Haman. It wasn't like descent from around a bunch of different uh, pockets of the kingdom with his people. It wasn't true, but it didn't matter because the king was impulsive and he was sometimes foolish and he just bought the narrative. Again, this matters because the people of God have faced threats and hostility for generations. We ought not be surprised when we are either overlooked or oppressed as his people. Don't forget that this is only about Haman on the surface. When you dig deeper, scripture is very clear. Scripture teaches that there is an evil spiritual resistance to God and his plan to rescue the world. The spiritual evil animates the human evil that we can see with our eyes. So we shouldn't be surprised when we're treated poorly, when we're looked at with suspicion, when we're told you are dangerous and what you believe is dangerous, or that we face opposition simply for being God's people in the world and doing the things that God's people do. We are in exile. We are not home yet. We're learning how to live as exiles in this city as we await our heavenly city. And we should expect trouble, not ease. So what happens with this evil plot? A decree goes out to every part of the Persian Empire that says in about a year's time, every single Jewish person, doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are, must be annihilated. This is an absolute catastrophe, nightmare situation. To add insult to injury, the edict went out as the Jewish people were preparing to celebrate Passover, which is their celebration where they remember that God rescued his people from the deadly oppression of the Pharaoh in Egypt. So the question now is, for the the original audience, they're asking, will God rescue his people from their enemies This time, they're in exile. Why are they in exile? For unfaithfulness to God. This is really a question of God, what will you do? And God, are you gracious? Let's see what the people do, and then we'll find out what God does. Esther 4, verses 1 to 3. Here we go. I'm going to read. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, this devious plan to annihilate the Jews, he tore his clothes He put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people. In every province where the king's command and edict reached, they fasted, wept, and lamented. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The people were shocked by the decree. And they went into a deep state of mourning in the face of hostility, in the face of threats. They fasted, which this message is about fasting for protection. So they fasted. Now Mordecai sent Esther word. She's the queen. She's in the palace. Mordecai sends her a word about what happened. And then he commanded her to approach the king to implore his favor and to plead with him personally for her people. Here's what happens next. Esther 4 verses 10 to 12. Esther spoke to Hadak and commanded him to tell Mordecai 
All of the royal officials and people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, death penalty, unless the king accepts the royal extends the royal scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And then Esther's response was reported, relayed back to Mordecai. So Esther basically tells Mordecai, hey, cuz, uh, you realize that you're asking me to risk my life, right? The king hasn't been asking for me lately. He could have me killed if I do what you ask. She's feeling the heat, the pressure, the danger, and she's afraid. And again, we, if, if we have some self-awareness, we should see some or much of ourselves in her. We've likely all shrunk back from danger to save our own hides at one point or another. Maybe even hidden that we're part of God's people because it could bring on humiliation, ridicule, rejection, or worse. That's what Esther did, and I think we can see ourselves in her response. Let's see what happens with Mordecai when Mordecai responds. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. All that comfort and privilege cannot save you. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. Amazing faith. But you, Esther, and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. There is so much here. In a nutshell, Mordecai confronts her life of comfort, safety, and compromise at the palace. Mordecai reminds her, hey, God is working. God's working. Wake up. God's working. He's inviting you into what he's doing. He says that if Esther does nothing, relief and deliverance will come from another place. In other words, God will rescue his people through some other means, which is remarkable faith when there is an edict that says, we're gonna kill you all in the next year. Remarkable faith that Mordecai had, something that he understood that Esther didn't. Now, he tells her, if you do nothing, you'll be destroyed, and so will your father's family. There is some ambiguity as to what Mordecai means. Some see this as a veiled threat to Esther while others see that Mordecai helping her to see the consequences of doubling down on compromise. She would basically cut herself off from the people of God if she saved herself and abandoned them. I personally see this as Mordecai presenting Esther with her options and asking her to make a decision with the big picture in mind. And I think we could do well to listen to this as though it's directed to us in those moments when we're afraid or we're asleep to our true identity as God's sons and daughters. Mordecai basically says this, you are compromised, but you don't have to stay there. You are in a unique position to do something. You have a choice about what you do, and there are consequences no matter what choice you make. In the midst of hostility, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of hard times, Esther could choose to remain compromised living for safety and comfort, hidden from her true identity, afraid, self-protective, and cut herself off 
practically from God, from his people, and from the work that he's doing to rescue the world. Remember, the Jewish people had the promises of God that from you, from your descendants, will come the Messiah, the one who will bring light and hope and will make all things new. That's coming from your line. So when Haman says, annihilate the Jewish people, it is an attack on God's plan to rescue the world through the Messiah. That's what Haman understood. That's what, excuse me, Haman did not understand, but Mordecai seems to have understood. So Esther had a choice. She could stay safe, she could play it safe, and say, hey, this is, this is unreasonable, this could cost me a lot, this could cost me my life, or she could choose to return to her true identity as a royal daughter of the king of kings. That would require her to become vulnerable. She'd have to face danger and potential loss. And she'd have to leave the comfort and safety of her little world and openly trust God before other people who could hurt her or worse. It would also mean that it would, it would also mean that she would identify once and for all with God's people in their suffering. And also, if things turned out well, in their victory. In God's victory through them. So the crisis around her, the dumpster fire around her, led to an identity crisis within her. Who am I? Whose am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Who will protect me from danger? When we face difficult moments, moments of crisis, and especially when we're afraid, we're asking the same questions whether we realize it or not. Where is God? Is he here or is he absent? Does he care? Is he for me? Can I trust him, right? If I do the right thing, what will it cost me? Those are the questions that we're typically asking when we're afraid. In that tough situation with your boss or with a wayward child or with a difficult person or when you're thinking about big, big picture stuff like COVID, the election that's coming up, public policy that hurts people, racism, whatever, where do you turn? Where do you turn? I'm gonna go back to what I started with. If we don't recognize that God is always working, we won't join him in what he's doing. And I'm gonna to add to it by saying, we'll look for protection elsewhere. That's what makes us, even as Christians in America, turn to politicians and put our hope and trust in them or to our military might or to whatever, powerful people, militias, or on the flip side, what causes us to hide, to distract ourselves, to consume mindlessly, and to fall asleep when there's a dumpster fire raging. But this is a moment where God wakes Esther up. Honey, get up. And I think he's waking us up too. Let's see how she responds. Esther 4, 15 to 17. Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. She sends this reply to Mordecai. Verse 16. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Susa is the capital city of Persia. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther had commanded him. Whoa. Esther woke up to her true identity. She went from compromised to committed. 
I will risk my neck for the people of God, and if it costs me everything, so be it. What changed? What changed? I think that what happened is that she finally saw God for who he really is. He's not absent. He's not unconcerned. He's not distant. He's not powerless. He's not removed from this world as the dumpster fire rages. No, he's working, and he has a plan to redeem this mess. He will deliver his people. He will send his Messiah. He will make all things new, and nobody and nothing can stop that. It may cost us our lives in the process, but it, the plan of God will never fail. It won't. It's like she woke up and she remembered God's people are constantly facing threats and hostility because this world is not our home. And there's another ruler in power, Satan, who hates us. But God has a plan and he must rescue the Jewish people in this story because from their descendants come the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. He is the one who will make everything new. He's the one who will make everything right. He is the one who will bring the heavenly city down to earth to make us whole in his presence. He will remove evil from the world. There will be no more Hamans. There will be no more foolish kings like Xerxes signing off on stupid policy or hurtful policy or worse. He will usher in Jesus, his rule and his reign, and he will remove everything that opposes God. Sin, death, disease, rebellion. I think Esther woke up to her gospel identity and she woke up to the fact that she has a role to play. She is a partner to God, as we all are. God, we are his human partners in the world to see what he is doing come to pass to rescue and restore everything to his original intent through Jesus Christ. Now, in this moment of confusion and crisis with evil rulers, she realized nothing can stop this and he will become king again. How does that help you and me as we face hard things right now? God is victorious over evil through Jesus Christ, and we are his royal sons and daughters who he calls out to step into the hard, the scary, the messy, and to be his people amidst it all. What are you afraid of today? We fast for protection when we face these threats and hostility and fear. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of people who are in power over you? Are you afraid of politicians? Are you afraid of public policies that are crippling businesses, isolating children, and preventing us from meeting as the corporate church to worship? What are you afraid of today? Maybe it's, a, it's an abusive person in your life. Maybe it's someone who slanders you. Maybe it's somebody who falsely accuses you. Maybe it's situations that could just turn out badly and cost you a lot. If we learn anything from Esther, it's that God is working even if it doesn't look like it. And people aren't as scary as you think. Do you want to hear the rest of the story of Esther? You're going to have to read it. You have to read it. It's so good. It takes 30 minutes. So just ditch one show this week, one 30-minute episode of something, to read this book. It is worth it. It is so, so good. What I can say is that Haman, with all of his plotting and his scheming and his deviousness and King Xerxes with his kind of foolishly signing off on Terrible things, they come to nothing. Haman specifically, he is, his plot is foiled. Esther tells the king what is going to happen and the king ends up putting Haman on a stake that Haman had built for Mordecai. 
Haman was going to put him on it and impale Mordecai, and instead it was Haman who was impaled on that stake. And, he, and Mordecai, who had been forgotten and neglected, was raised up to a position of prominence in the king's court and took care of his people. Amazing! The people woke up, they fasted, they prayed, they spent three days doing that, and God delivered them. God delivered them. And God delivered, uh, delivers us through the Messiah, whose line was protected through the fasting, the prayer, and the courageous faith of Esther. Amazing stuff. I wish I had more time. Just to read it for yourself. Incredible. Now that plan, that rescue plan, that God continued to work out through Esther, even when it didn't look like it, through a lot of little coincidences that were not coincidences at all. God continues to work today with us. We are partners of God in some scary times. When we get to do something about what's going on in this world, we get to partner with him. So is there a situation right now that you're facing, a conflict, a struggle, or another challenge in your life in which God feels distant, feels removed, or even absent? Are you facing something today that's hard on its own but feels desperate because it seems like God is nowhere to be found, like he's out of sight. Take heart, he is not absent. Even if we don't see any indication of him at work, he is working behind the scenes. And there's a sense in which he's also gently nudging us when we're asleep to wake up to his invitation to join him in what he's doing amidst these tough times. He wants to partner with you and me to bring his loving, restoring, rule and reign into situations and relationships. So I want to encourage you this week, this is where we're going to end. I want to encourage you this week to think about where you are facing something hard or scary and take the opportunity to fast for protection with your community. I'm going to give you three ideas, okay? Number one, you can fast for protection from the temptation to compromise in your life. You can fast for protection from the temptation to compromise somewhere in your life. So maybe it's avoiding hard conversations. Maybe it's avoiding sharing the hope of Jesus with your coworkers. Maybe it's, it's this desire to, not, to avoid doing the right thing because it might cost you something. And you can fast for protection from that temptation so that you won't give into it, so that you won't be overcome by sin and compromise in your life. God loves to raise up royal sons and daughters to their true identity, to no longer be compromised, afraid, and dictating, you know, living life based on circumstances that change, but living life from a space of security and their identity. And you can do that for you and for me. So you can fast for that, for protection from the temptation to compromise in your life. You can also fast, number two, for protection from people or situations that frighten you. You can fast for protection from people or situations that frighten you. That's totally okay. Some of you are facing really scary situations where there's people who are unpredictable. There's situations that you have no idea how they're gonna go. And the stakes might be really high for you. It might have to do with your finances. It might have to do with your marriage. It may have to do with your parenting, with your, uh, with your job, whatever. With your living situation, it could have to do with all sorts of things. You can fast for protection from people or situations that frighten you. You can ask God to protect you. Number three, lastly, you can fast for protection from public policy that hurts people. 
You can fast for protection from public policy that hurts people. And I'll just close up with this. Uh, this message really, for me, it kind of hit me in a fresh way because probably two weeks ago I was sitting down and I was hearing about all the different things that are going on right now in our world about the pain that businesses are facing because of COVID and not just businesses, obviously, there's people who are suffering and there's employees whose jobs are on the line and who may not be coming back to their workplaces, who may not have work or income. And it just hit me. And, and I honestly became overwhelmed thinking like, how are we doing this? How is this gonna continue? We're headed for so much trouble. We already have a lot of trouble, we're heading for so much more. And it was overwhelming. And I remember saying out loud, where is Jesus in all this? Where is he in all this? And going through this message in the book of, going through the book of Esther, preparing for this message, I realized that God is bigger than public policy. God is bigger than the people in power who are coming up with policy. And I had put too much hope, too much stock in people. And I had forgotten to put my hope and my trust in Jesus, who is over all. And so it was a reminder that I can cry out to him that when I am overwhelmed by whatever it might be, in this case it was public policy, but it can certainly apply to all areas of life, that I can cry out to the one who is over all the politicians, who is over all the government. He will have a government that will have no end, perfect ruler who's going to have a perfect way of ruling his people. I can look to him and ask him, Lord Jesus, help us, protect us. Come and establish your loving rule and reign in this world. Come and bring better policy where, there's, where it's needed. Jobs flourishing. It's about flourishing, human flourishing. So if you're feeling like there's situations that overwhelm you, that are difficult, that are scary, take heart. I know I am there. I have been there. I'll be there again. But now I'm seeing more and more that I can cry out to him my hope in him in the midst of it and fasting for protection is an expression of that i love you church that's it i'm done i hope you guys have a great week and if something does pop up if god is if you feel like god is working in the midst of this fasting series in your life tom and i would love to hear about it for encouragement to be built up to know like this is what god is doing uh, he is doing much but we'd love to hear specific stories if you have them so i hope you guys have a great week love you enjoy your day